Okay, this morning we're gonna, I'm going to read from John, the fifth chapter. And just lis- let's just listen to the word, you know. Let, let, just listen and, and so that God can speak uh, to, to all of us. In John, the fifth chapter, verse 1, it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say what particular feast it was. It's left out on purpose, because that's not the issue. But that there was a feast that the Jews, the religious crowd, were operating in, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, where the hub of all that activity was. Now, there is, at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, the sheep market, a sheep gate, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches, Bethesda here in the Hebrew, and when you translate it in the Septuagint, which takes the Hebrew and translates it over into the Greek, the name of Bethesda is this house of mercy. It's a house of mercy or a house of kindness. And there were five porches. And what a picture this is. There were five porches. And in these five porches, there were a great number an overwhelming number of powerless people. They had all kinds of things going on in their lives, and they were completely powerless in themselves. Just picture that as Jesus came. There's these five porches, and they are filled with people who were blind, who were halt. They couldn't move. They couldn't walk. They were withered. They were withered, their limbs. And then they were waiting for the moving of the water, some specific thing to happen. Verse 4 says, For an angel went down at, at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there. This is one man. There's a certain man, there's a multitude, there's multitudes in these porches filled. But there's this one man, he's not even in one of the porches, which had an infirmity for 38 years. He had a disease, a disease that had attached itself to him, and he had it for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he had been now a long time in that particular case. And what was the case? 38 years of being absolutely, incredibly powerless. Powerless. Jesus said unto him, he asked him a question. He said, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be completely healed? The powerless, the impotent man, the powerless one, had no power in himself, answered him, Sir, still doesn't know who he is. He said, I have no man. I have no man when the water's troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming down, another steps down before me. What a picture. Can you imagine this? Here's this guy. Has this disease. It's such a bad disease. He can't even get up and walk to go to the pool. And countless, how many? 
Well, he had this disease for 38 years. He's been here for 38 years. Can you imagine the multitudes that just kept walking by him? <laughs> just walking by him. I was picturing this this morning as God uh, gave this, uh, this beautiful word, this beautiful counsel to me and as he desires to give it uh, this morning to all of us. But just think of that. I mean, countless, just going right by. People so overwhelmed and occupied with their own need that they're just going right by this guy for 38 years. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> so many on their way to getting healed and you're sitting there and it's been 38 years, the same thing. Maybe the same disease, maybe the same sin, maybe the same failure. And multitudes going in. He said, will you be made whole? He said, I have no man to put me in the pool. But while I'm coming, how do you think he was coming? He couldn't walk. He was trying to, as best as he could, drag himself. What a helpless condition. And while I'm coming, doing everything I can, I can't walk, I'm crawling, and I don't know how, another steps down before me, God. And Jesus said unto him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Very interesting, the Sabbath. The Jews, the religious crowd, therefore, and if you know the Jews, when it says the Jews here, in John chapter 5 and verse 10, the Jews, you can look through the synoptics. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here in John. And the religious crowd of the day hated Jesus. God and in humanity. God and humanity. Operating in only what God could operate towards guilty, fallen, ruined man, completely helpless and powerless in himself, he could only do it by grace, and that would be truth. You see, there's no grace without truth. There's no truth without grace. And Christ himself, when he came, put on humanity in John 1 and verse 14, is the fullness of that grace and truth. He's the only one. But yet they watched miracle after miracle. They were eyewitnesses to these miracles, these healings, these constant things. And all it did was, was infuriate their hatred of him. <laughs> you want to talk about the insanity of man, fallen and ruined, and rejecting Christ. Just what, just what a picture. All this was going on. I mean, he's hated. Jesus is hated. He's going, he's going to go to Jerusalem. You want to talk? That's where all the Jews went, all the high-ranking ones went, where he knew he was going to have hatred. But did it stop him from coming to one man who was powerless in himself? The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. This <laughs> is so crazy. It isn't lawful for you to carry your bed. You're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath day. Here's the miracle of this. And don't they saw this man. This was at Jerusalem. How many of those in their religious pride and arrogancy 
wanted nothing to do with this helpless man. Not a thing to do with him. They knew him. They saw him. And he's healed. And what does it bring out in them? This, this work of Jesus, this grace and truth, what does it bring out? Legalism. Legalism. Yeah, it was on the same day was the Sabbath. Same day. You're not supposed to carry your bed. He, this impotent man that's now completely healed, who's walking, <laughs> they never saw him walk. They didn't see him walk for 38 years. They saw him powerless, and they didn't do a single thing about it. That's legalism. It's legalistic preaching. It's not a, there's no life in it. The Lord tells you what to do in Deuteronomy 4.1. Do and live. <laughs> yeah. Tells the sinner, sinner, don't sin and do right. <laughs> Unbelievable. He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up your bed and walk. Then asked they him, what man is that which said unto you to take up your bed and to walk? Which man of that? Who, who, who told you that? By whose authority? By whose, who gave you that authority? We're the authoritative ones. Who gave you that authority? And he that was healed didn't know who it was. Because Jesus hid himself away. And there was, a, there was multitudes. And he hid, hid himself away. After that, afterwards, this whole scene, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, you are made whole. You are made whole. Sin no more. In other words, don't continue. You don't have to continue in sin. That's 1 John 2, 1. My little children... My little children, see that you sin not. You don't have to sin. But if you do sin, which is, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to choose to sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's the propitiation for our sins. Our personal sins. All those that are in him and have received the fact that he has paid for their sins. But also, we have the message to go out to the world and say, this potentially could be yours. And that's 1 John 2, 1 and 2. But here we see this. Sin no more, because lest a worse thing come upon you. You know, because when we sin and don't get right in an area, we're going to sin again in something worse. They, in Isaiah 30, verse 1, they add sin to sin. Until, until we're powerless, until he brings us to the place where we are completely helpless and hopeless in ourselves, and not looking to anyone else other than Jesus, then all we can do is add sin unto sin. Constantly. In Psalm 69 and verse 27, in Romans 6 and verse 19, we'll add iniquity unto iniquity. We'll operate in our will, the result will be sin constantly. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus <laughs> and sought to slay him. They wanted to murder him. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's the flesh. 
That's the unsaved person. True, and unfortunately, <laughs> and truthfully, though, that's the flesh that's in us that we're not of. It's true. Romans 8, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity there is strong, settled feelings and unchangeable of hatred toward God. You can cover it up all you want. It's just hatred to it. That's the flesh in all of us. And that's all that legalistic preaching can produce. Because it's not subject to the law of God, which the law of God is Christ in that context in Romans 8, 2, and 3, for the law of sin and death has, has we've been freed from the law and sin of death by through Jesus Christ. So we have this flesh in us in Romans 8, 9 as believers. We have that flesh in us. Now, we de- Jesus defined the flesh. The word, the Holy Spirit defines the flesh in, in Romans 8, verse 9. The flesh is in us, but we're not of it, thank God. But we can function in it. And when we function in it, what are we functioning in? Romans 8, 7 makes it clear. Hatred. Hatred to God. Well, the Jews sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, when it talks about the Sabbath, we see the Sabbath first mentioned. Forgive me. The Sabbath is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. When, the, when God created his work, as we just really focus now, get everything else aside, and really focus on what's being said, okay, because this is, in truth, this is the Word of God, and it's not a man just speaking it, <laughs> okay? That's First Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, I thank God, that when you receive the Word, you didn't receive it as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. Coming through a vessel that can do certain things, but it's still the Word of God. This is what we need to give our focus and our attention to even though sometimes those vessels do some crazy things like I just did. (laughs) They sought to slay him because he was doing something on the Sabbath day. Sabbath always speaks of rest. That's why they weren't to do anything. They weren't to do anything on the Sabbath. So they were holding Jesus to that same requirement. They thought that they were the authority. Who's our only authority? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that's our only authority. He is our only authority. It's as simple as that. He is our authority, one and only authority. The Sabbath, as we can see, and we will see this. Let me just read these scriptures. We'll see what the Sabbath was made for. The Sabbath, crystal clear in the Word of God, wasn't made man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was something that God did. So again, when we look at the creative acts of God in Genesis, the first chapter, in those first 31 verses there, we see all his creative acts. He's creating things out of nothing. He's speaking and things are created. (laughs) Amazing, powerful word. So he's speaking these things And he's speaking them into existence. And then when he's done, he says in the 31st verse, he saw everything that he did and everything that God himself through Christ as the creator. By the way, it was the son that created it all in John 1 verse 3 and Colossians 1 and verse 16. 
He said it was good because there's only good in God, period. There's no good anywhere else. We know that based upon John 6, 63, and Romans 7 and verse 18. See? And Romans 7 and verse 18. And we can be thankful this morning for grace. And you know what grace always does when we receive it? Even in our weakest moments or when we're hurt or when we're misunderstood, you know, grace is still there that can allow us to make an adjustment to constantly receive continuously his loving counsel for us without interruption. He has that for all of us. And so the Sabbath, we know, as is clearly in the Word of God, was man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, was made for man. Now, when God, Christ in his pre-incarnate state, finished the work in Genesis 1, 1 through 31, okay, on, in six days there was creation. On the seventh day, what did he do? In Genesis 2, 1 and 2, he rested. That's his physical, material, created work. When Christ finished the work for us, Is he resting right now, seated at the right hand of the Father? That's what the Sabbath, okay? And that's what it's saying. Man was not made for the Sabbath. He has no authority. But the authoritative one with his love made that Sabbath because he dealt with everything, all the distance that would be between God and man, between man and the individual. He finished it. He finished it all. So the Jews here in 5.16, and we know that, in 5.16 there, they sought to kill him because what was he doing? This is, this is right here, Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 27 and 28. 27 and 28 of Mark 2. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man. It was something that God did completely apart from man. Why? Because man was ruined outside of Christ. Man was powerless, had no ability. That man is the picture of every one of us prior to receiving Christ, and that's the place where we will end up experientially when we don't submit our will to him. The Sabbath was made for man. See? Not man for the Sabbath. Man doesn't make the Sabbath. He's not in control. He has no authority outside of the authority and power and love of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, but unto him, but unto them that would receive him in John 1, 12, he gave them the power, the right, the authority to be called the sons of God, even to them which would believe on his name. His name there in John 1, 12 refers to his person, and the work that only he accomplished. And so the Sabbath, it says there, the Sabbath in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, meaning man can't do anything, was apart from him. Verse 28 of Mark 2, therefore the Son of Man is Lord. Notice that there? You don't make him Lord, he is Lord, okay? Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So why could Jesus still operate during that during the Sabbath? Because wasn't he the end of it? Yes. He's the end of it. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father works here. My father's working for this purpose. And don't don't 
Let's not let, allow the enemy to cause us any kind of distraction or, or hurt or anything to take us away from concentrating. Because we can instantly make the adjustment to receive the Word of God. We don't have to shut down. We can immediately receive it. We can. All we have to do is be humble and intriguable. And then God will come right in, give us the grace to make the adjustment from the pain, the hurt, the misunderstanding, to instantly being able to receive the Word. And I do say this. Don't Okay. But Jesus answered them, My Father works there, and I work. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. Now they're really infuriated. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, being the actual fulfillment, even the Sabbath, all through the Old Covenant was pointing to Christ and him alone. It didn't have a thing about man to do or keep. Some are still trying to keep the Sabbath. You know what that's called? To this, this morning, it's called Covenant Theology and Lordship Salvation. That's right. They're going to help God do something in their powerless, helpless state. Many Christians are, have received Christ, and they are positioned in Christ. But in their experience, they've been duped to believe that they can do something to please God outside of the only one that ever pleased Him, in Matthew 3 and verse 17, in John 17 and verse 5, which was Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. And when you function in Him and who He's made you to be as a result of finishing the work and resting, giving the Father a place to rest, Jesus resting there, and that's our resting place. And that is the Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and you can see that about rest given the rest that we have. So, here's the picture. The picture here, the picture here is that here is this powerless, impotent man and he's healed by Christ. Has, is there anything that Christ has not healed us of? Anything? Has he healed us of everything? Did he finish the work in John 19 and verse 30? Has he healed us spirit? soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Has he? Yes. Jesus not only paid for our sins, not only for our sins of omission and commission and transgression, obviously. Commission would be those sins that we transgress. We know better, we do it anyway. And omission is just we're ignorant. And when we're ignorant, we don't have truth. And don't. the only thing we can function in is a fallen, pride, proud Nature, any of us. But he's paid for that. All of those. But he's not only paid for those sins, but he's also paid for all the effects of sin. And the effect of sin, when we sin, instant guilt comes in, and as a result, condemnation. But did Jesus take care of all of that for us? Did he? He did. He healed this man of everything. Oh, how the legalist hates grace. Do you know why? Because grace, grace is who Jesus is and him alone. And, he, he, and there's no help from any fallen man. So he's healed. And so he, he comes again. And what is the glory? We see the glory of Bethesda, this house of mercy, this house of kindness. 
But even in that sense, picture it. Five porches, every kind of disease to person you could think of waiting for the angel to come down. For the first one who could run right by that impotent man for 38 years, step in the water, and the angel would trouble the water, but there was one condition. You had to step in. Could this man do that? No. Would anybody even lift a finger to help him? No. And that's when Jesus came. He came. Because with all of that, with all of that going on, it's just a house of mercy in name only, but not much healing's going on, if any at all. And what was it? The whole place was impotent. The whole place was powerless to heal this particular case of this particular man. It was powerless. Even, even with angelic intervention, it says. Still, they were, this man was powerless. And that, even for a time, made, it was the only thing that made it a house of mercy was that pool where they could go that one particular time. But what this man had, and think of this, and countless those in an unsaved state and those that are, as Christians still function in particular sins and can't get victory, that disease that that, that man had kept him from going to the place to be healed. And how many times does the does Satan hate the believer because they have Christ in them and they want, he wants them to function back in these diseases, these sin, because all disease is a result of sin. And that's why it's called disease. You ever break the word up? Dis-ease. <laughs> no wonder it says in Matthew 11 and 28 and verse 30, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. I'll give you, your place of rest is me. Christian, your place of rest is me. Your place of rest is me. It's your only place of rest. You may go into the world, you may go back to certain lust patterns and certain things, but you will never find your rest. Experientially, we're resting in opposition in Christ. But do we have that experientially? That disease kept him from going forward. How many things keep the Christian from going forward, from coming to hear the word of God on a consistent basis? Well, there was that feast, as we said. Again, we're not even told what it is. It was a feast of the Jews, of the religious crowd. And yet, Jesus is outside of all of that. But he still visits that place. And what is he revealing? He's revealing that whole, that whole ministry, everything that was going on there outside of him was what? It was only hollow. It was empty. <laughs> A lot of empty, hollow preaching and teaching that will say something about Christ, but add some kind of fleshly works to it. That's what was going on there when Jesus came. It was a big show. Just a big show. And along with that whole show was the powerlessness of the law as a remedy, as any kind of remedy for the Lord, uh, for man's condition, his diseased condition. There, was, there wasn't anything to help them. There isn't anything for us. 
Thank God he is our help. But what does it bring to it once? It shows us this. It shows us this Bethesda, this particular place, that whenever the old covenant is being lifted up through, the, through flesh, through, through man preaching outside of Christ, taking the things of Christ but without him, telling you do's and don'ts, when that happens, what happens? It, he, just, it, he shows up. And what does he do? What did, what did he do to that one man? In this whole powerless scene, think about it. And it's a show going on. Picture the Pharisees with their robes, their phylacteries, as they walk by this powerless man, as they're powerless to do anything in these five porches. Their eyes are on themselves. Their eyes are on themselves. But you know what he did? He shut up that one man to the grace of God alone. You see, that's what he has to do with us. Said it many times, and, and God um, had us write it and, and, and put it in, in the book, um, A Must. If you want to be disappointed, if you want to be dis I don't care if it's another believer, I don't care who it is. If you want to be disappointed, look for, look for something in them, in them that'll make you happy and make you secure. If you want to be discouraged, look within. Because all you and I are going to see outside of Christ experientially is powerlessness, shallowness, hollowness, hatred and not being able to do anything about it, hating your sin and yet not doing, being able to do a thing about it when Christ has already dealt with it. He shuts up this one man to the grace of God alone. Those porches were filled with sick people that were just waiting for that water to be troubled. It made me think of this this morning. Job said in Job 23 in verse 16, he said, the Almighty troubles me. For the believer, he troubles us. He has to trouble us in the sense to show us that when we function in areas of the flesh apart from him or when anything other than him replaces it, we have nothing in ourselves. There's nothing in us. He has to show us that. So the Almighty troubles me and he allows the trouble of the flesh and of what the enemy tries to do <laughs> to keep us alive and keep us as a bond slave to it. In John 8, verse 33, he that sins is a bond servant, welded, bond, bond to sin. Impossible outside of Christ. Impossible. And so what do we see here as we begin to wrap this up this morning? What we see? Job said, the Almighty troubles me. So the trouble that the flesh would bring and the enemy would try to use to cause it, God uses it to make our heart soft, to make our will soft. The Almighty troubles me. He makes my heart soft. What does that mean? In Psalm 102 and verse 23, he has to weaken our strength. Oh, how we think we're so strong without him. We will take everything that he has given us, everything that he designed to, to glorify himself and to bless him. We'll take it to ourselves. We'll make it an issue about ourselves. And that's what we think our strength is. We can do one thing without him. 
The Almighty troubles me to make my heart soft, so that in Psalm 119, 130, the entrance of his word, he can have an entrance to his word, to a submitted will. And then it will give us, it'll give us light and, and help us to focus on reality, that we can't do anything, that we are helpless, that we are hopeless like this man. We can't do anything. And that's why, and, and today, that's when we come to hear the word of God. We're hearing Christ speak to us. That's what we do. That's where we are today. That's where we are. And he's still the same today. And God wants us to see that. Jesus wants us to see this through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's just the same yesterday and today and forever. Right now, he's in heaven as a man. God, truly God and truly man. And he's interceding for us. <laughs> he is. He's been through everything that you and I would ever go through. Tasted it more than any other human being has ever done. He's tasted it. And oh boy, how we need to come as best as we can to come and to receive. We have more than a pool with an angel. We have a finished work. We have a Christ. As we said in Romans 8, 34, in Hebrews 7, 25, and in Hebrews 9, verse 26, he ever, he's ever living to make intercession for us. Did you know that? He is living still. That's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, but in a glorified state, representing us in our position in him. And so, in Psalm 102, verse 26, he weakens my strength. Do we have any strength without him? No. He weakens my strength. And thank God it says, and he shortens my days in that way. Thank God. Thank God. Well, this man was diseased. There was no healing for this man, no healing for us outside of Christ. So as we close again this morning, just picture that in the midst of this whole multitude, this whole scene going on, religious crowd not doing a thing, still preaching the law, probably telling all those people, see, you didn't keep the law, that's why you have sinned. You didn't do this, you didn't do that, that's why. And this man, I can't tell you how many times I felt like that man. <laughs> oh boy. But what was he doing there? We Here's one there, lying there. Can't walk, can't do anything, and he's vainly seeking help. Can you imagine? 38 years he's there. You know what that's a picture of when we study it? God took Israel out of Egypt in one night. He did. You'll see it, the, the two forms of it, Christ dying for them in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, opening up the Red Sea in Exodus, the 14th chapter, Christ dying for them, and yet they're, they're, in, the, they're in the wilderness. And what should, if, if you read Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2, if you read that, what should have taken them 11 days to get into their promised land, it took them approximately 38 to 39 and a half, almost 40 years to go in. Because they refused through unbelief. They refused to relinquish, relinquish all truth that you can't help God at all. You can't do a single thing. And he's not relying on you to do anything. His son did it all. 38 years, same picture. Picture, that man pictures any of us. Well, 
38 years, that disease has fastened on him, sin, some form of sin. The thing that this man may have hated. Do you ever hate things that you do? Do you ever hate them? And you can't have it, you don't get any victory. And you go back and you hate them again. And you go back and you hate them again. This man was vainly seeking help for 38 years, but he was helpless in that condition. And there he lies, watching in the presence of a remedy, right there, in the presence of this one remedy. But for him, guess what? There wasn't any. There wasn't any. Not, not for him. Others can be healed, but not him. Do you ever hear the voice of the enemy? Huh? Others can be healed, but not you. It's too late. You've done too much. <laughs> You've done far too much. You're impotent. You can't do anything. Jesus did all this. You can't even do this one thing? Answer, no. I can't do anything in John 15, 1 to 5, without him. I can do nothing. And so the desperateness we see of this man's need made Christ's hand, what he would do, and his very heart Go after him. Isn't that interesting? And all the time he's being hated. Oh, Lord. He went right after him. Did he have to go to the pool? Did he have to rely on himself to do it when he couldn't? No. What happens? He hears the impotent word, all power Jesus has. You see that in Matthew 28, verse 18, and in, in Revelations 19, and verse 6, he has all power. He has, as we concentrate this morning, so we don't miss anything, he has all power. He has all power. He has all power for us. All he has to do is hear and submit to that impotent word, which would heal him. And in one moment, he rises up. Do you ever get... Yet you're so overwhelmed as a believer in sin, you've gotten so far from God and it seems power, it's powerless. And then you get tired of that. You're tired of it. Then you open up the Word and the Holy Spirit takes a particular scripture and it becomes a rhema, a beautiful truth. And it just, without you being prepared or without you doing anything, His grace comes in and you say, yes, Lord, and it lifts you right up. And when he does that, he doesn't make us go all the way back and come here again. We go right forward again. Can't tell you how many times it's been my experience. Right on. Keep going. Right on. Keep going. Right on. Forward. Right where you left off. Keep going. You're not, you don't have to go back and work your way back again. You just keep going forward. That's what he told the Israelites. That's what he told Moses to tell the people. Stand still, you can't do anything, and see the salvation of the Lord. In Exodus 14, verse 13, Exodus 14, 14, the battle's the Lord's. You, Moses, tell the people, you go forward. You go forward. You go forward. Go forward. He rises up in a moment and takes up his bed. All these miracles here in this parable and all these miracles, what are they a type of? A spiritual healing. Spiritual healing. That's all that's what they are. See? Because here's what happens. In this man's case, and like ours, our sins are dealt with, but what is my experience? Like this man here, in this particular case, between 
there's sin, and when we function in sin, what are we functioning in? Helplessness. <laughs> and the enemy convinces us, you know, you go back and do it again. Go back and do it again. Constant helplessness. That's what it's teaching us. It teaches us that. Because he that commits sin, and boy does he want us to do this, the enemy, especially us in Christ. He wants us in our experience to commit sin, go back to those sins, so that we are become his bondservant. Oh boy. His bondservant. But none can break that bondage. None can break it. None can break the... And he who has broken the bondage in terms of our position is the only one that can break it in our experience. He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can come in and do that. None can break that bondage. No other person. Go for him. You can't do it yourself. Then if it's not Christ, you're going to look for someone else. And finally, when they can't do it, where are you now? That's when, that's when Christ shows up because in Isaiah 30, verse 18, he's been waiting to be gracious. And so what do we see? What do we see? That the only one that can break that bondage is the Redeemer of men. That's it. The one who's, who's done it in our position now brings us into our experience to deal with it because none can do it but him. In all modes of healing, man's disease, short of the power and grace of Christ himself, all they do is make the failure, it makes it harder and harder, makes us harder and harder. So we just want to quit and give up. <laughs> yep. We must remember that our eternal destiny is already taken care of. <laughs> so he wants us, to, he can't court us in eternity, he wants to court us in time. He wants to court us in time. So as we, as I say, as we wrap this up, I think this is three strikes in a moat. You know, man asked for the law. He did. Man asked for legalism. He asked for something that God would give him that man could do apart from Christ and still please God. The Jews said in Exodus 19 and verse 8 and 24 and verse 3, they said, tell us what to do. You took us out already. You took us out of bondage. You delivered us from Egypt, the world system, under Pharaoh, type of Satan. And now we're in this wilderness, in this wilderness on our way to the promised land. And while we're on the way, I tell you what, what? why don't you tell us what to do? And we'll do it. Well, the law is holy, just, and good in Romans 7, verse 12. Was then that that was holy, just, and good meant to be evil and wrong to me? No. God gave the law to any, and I'll read this. This is who he's give, he gave the law to. Did God ever give the law to us? Did Jesus fulfill the law in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Did he, finish, did he fulfill the law in Romans, 7, uh, Romans 10 and verse 4? Did he do that? And he did. But look who the law is for. Watch this. This is 1 Timothy. Chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, I besought you to abide at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you may charge them that they teach no other doctrine, no other teaching. Neither give heed to fables and endless geologies, genealogies, and minist which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, which is complete dependence in Christ, who he is, 
and his person and what he accomplished. Now, the end of the commandment is, is what? It's love, self-sacrificial love out of a pure heart. Is the commandment the Ten Commandments? Or is it the commandment in John 13, 34, and 35 to love one another in 1 John 4, 10 and 4, 19? Who we are in Christ. The end of, and anytime you see charity, you cross it right out because it's agape, self-sacrificial love, out of a heart that's been purified and as a result has, has a good conscience because the goodness of Christ is operating in that conscience and of faith not pretended anymore. I'm not going to pretend. I really am dependent on him. I'm not going to pretend when I'm not. From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. You know what vain jangling is today? Covenant theology. Lordship salvation. Desiring to be teachers of the law. <laughs> Legalism, what man can do. Understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. They can't do anything about it themselves. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. <laughs> What good does it do for the law when the law says to the sinner who's powerless in himself, don't sin? Doggy, don't bark. Kitty, don't meow. Birdie, don't go meep. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. It's who we are in Christ. He's our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. But for who? The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly, ungodly and for sinners, for unholy, profane, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, or manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that devile themselves with mankind. Hmm. <laughs> for men stealers, who can believe these what goes on today? For liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Listen. You think the enemy doesn't want us to function in our position experientially and when we don't, this is what our experience becomes. I am my sin. I am my failure. I am this. I am that. Are we in Romans 7, 17 and 20? Are we our sin anymore? No. We're not. We're not our sin anymore. So here's Bethesda, and we'll close. The works of man contrasted to the grace of God. Man's works, Jesus Christ finished it. The impossibility of man's works is what Bethesda teaches us. It's what it's teaching us this morning. The standard the standard of responsibility for the law can never be lowered. I don't know, did Jesus finish it and even go higher? Oh, he did. And all of us that are in him, he took with us, seated at the right hand of the Father. Did you know that every one of us are positioned in Christ? And that's how the Father sees us. He doesn't see us any different than he sees us in Christ. How do we see ourselves? How does the enemy want us to see ourselves? Oh, Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, murderers, uh, mothers, on and on and on it goes. On and on and on it goes. This is what it speaks of. The standard of responsibility can never be lowered 
whether actually or even virtually. Can't. Those same tables of stone, those same tables of the covenant that had been broken are restored. That goes into Exodus the 33rd chapter and the 34th chapter. We'll get into that this week and see what those meanings are. The first two were broken. The first two were broken. Because it was a man, Moses, who was very upset at what they were doing in the 32nd chapter of Exodus. In frustration and anger, they were broken. He had to go back up, and that law was still restored. Why? Because outside of Christ, what is there? Illegalism, fleshly works, hatred, anger, helplessness, hopelessness. The mercy of God can blot out the past, and it can allow a new beginning. But never an alteration of the terms of that law if they're a legal sense. Did we hear that? If I go back to the law, okay, and that's what the whole book of Hebrews was. It was Hebrew Christians who were now in Christ, born again, learning about who Christ was in his person and his work that finished it for them, and they were going right back to the law again. That's what they were doing. That's what the enemy has today through these different teachings. Again, covenant theology and lordship salvation. Go back to the law again. Go back to the law so that that becomes your experience and not your proper image in who Christ has made you and I to be. And we are so thankful. Thank you, Lord, this morning that we're not our sin anymore. We're not our worst day. We're not the worst way we feel. We're not what we've done to ourselves. We're not what anyone else did to us. We're completely who we are in you. Who Christ is in us and who we are in you. We're so thankful this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we can walk in love. We don't have to sit. But we can walk in love because we are loved. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, as dearly beloved children, we can walk in love. In the love that Christ has made ours. So that we can walk in the light and reality of that love this morning and then have a proper image that we are no longer our worst day, the worst feelings that we could have ever. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.